an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. Bet the board. What do you mean you don't bet? I mean, I don't bet. You know, I don't care. I don't. I never have. Never will. Yeah, right. I bet you 20 bucks I can get you gambling before the end of the day. You owe me 15 grand, pal. Pay him. Pay that man his money. It's the Bet the Board podcast. God likes me. He really, really likes me. In the end, I wound up right back where I started. I could still pick winners, and I could still make money for all kinds of people back home. And why mess up a good thing? Here's Payne Insider and Todd Furman. Welcome into the Bet the Board podcast powered by FoxBet. It's championship week in college football. Only one set of playoff rankings left to be unveiled come Sunday afternoon. I'm your host, Todd Furman, joined as always by my steam colleague and co-host, the one, the only, Payne Insider. Last regular season podcast for college football. Are you sad? sad? Are you sad? Are you nostalgic? Are you excited that you kind of see the finish line being the huge college football fan that you've become over the last couple of years? Got to tell you, we probably should be huge college football fans the way things have gone uh, the last few seasons. It's been the largest portion in terms of football uh, growing the role. I mean, NFL has been brutal, but uh, college football has been very good. The NFL has definitely has definitely been a challenge college football as you mentioned uh, very profitable last Saturday notwithstanding when you beat the market substantially watch BYU balloon out and the Cougars can't move the football do much of their own chagrin throughout the course of the first half I'll pay before we get into the five big games we have on the dock and of course we'll preview all the power five conference championships in great deal detail which even includes Clemson for the first time making the bet the board podcast in seemingly months I think since they played Texas A&M One through four remain unchanged. Ohio State number one, LSU number two, Clemson number three, Georgia number four. Suffice to say, if Georgia knocks off LSU, those are the four teams we're going to have in the college football playoff. Do you see a scenario, though, if LSU were to win and Ohio State wins where LSU could slide up to number one, setting up a showdown to the two teams that we have, one, two, Ohio State and Clemson meeting in the semifinals? Well, to your first question, I think Georgia obviously needs to win to stay in. Uh, Correct. If they don't, then some hell could possibly break loose. I doubt it, right? Uh, we'll find out a lot more Friday night. If Utah handles business, I think they're next in line if Georgia were to lose, um, which kind of renders the Baylor-Oklahoma game not as important. I don't really care who's one or two, but I, I think at this point I would I would continue to have Ohio State there in the one hole. They have been the most dominant team, the most balanced team, 
uh, great on both sides of the ball. That would be my my number one team, regardless of uh, how impressive they potentially win. And, and when you look at the future odds for the teams one through three, who we all expect are going to be firmly in the college football playoff, no team priced better than three to one right now at Fox Bet. Georgia eleven to one, Utah on the outside looking in at twenty two to one, Oklahoma thirty three to one, and you believe in real chaos. Baylor at three hundred to one. I think they would need a lot of dominoes to fall the right way. Not quite sure they would stand a snowball's chance against any of the top three, but hey. Weirder things have happened in college football, and you never know what could quite come to fruition. However, we'll start things off Friday night, Payne, where it's Utah taking on Oregon. And you mentioned that game. Utah, arguably in control of its own destiny, finds themselves six-and-a-half-point favorites against the Oregon Ducks. Total on this game, 46-and-a-half at Fox Bet. This game, of course, will take place at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara. And I guess the first thing to ask about this, we've seen the unfamiliar venue in college football often lend itself to some unique outcomes. Is there anything special or specific to the kind of surface and or weather conditions these two teams could encounter for Friday night. Yes. <laughs> yes, all of the above. Um, certainly that stadium over the course of time uh, plays to the under. And then obviously we have a unique situation here where I checked this morning. The rain isn't as large as it once was, right? Yesterday morning, you were looking at about a 99% chance of rain at kick. We're now down to about 74% chance, but there is wind in play. And I think those are the reasons we're seeing this total come down. Obviously, part of the matchup as well, but weather there, wind, rain, and the location in the stadium has been really conducive to under. So that that's really why we've seen this game take off of the 51 and we're down to 47 most places. All these totals this week, I have to tell you, there was a board not very large. Uh, everyone was running the models a little quicker today, uh, this week. And by about lunchtime Monday, most of these totals were absolutely pummeled, uh, where there was a massive interest. We saw the Wisconsin-Ohio State total uh, get buried through the key of 55, from 52 to 57, and it was by about lunchtime Monday. So a lot of movement on some of these totals. This week, to me, not to get too far off track, Great games, but there's just not a lot of like meaning to any of them, which is unfortunate. Yeah, you have to wonder sometimes for a couple of teams that seem to be on the inside of the college football playoff already, and we're going to get to them in great detail. You know, what kind of statements do they have to go out there and really make? How much do they want to put on film, knowing that it's not going to dictate a lot of what we're going to see in a couple short weeks? But uh, clearly, Friday night's game, Utah has to go out there and make one final statement. And when we look at the Utes, only three other FBS teams in the past 10 seasons, Payne, have held opponents under 100 rushing yards in 11 or more games this season. You look at Utah's dominance, they've outscored opponents 193-61 to in the second half this season. And over their last eight games, their average margin of victory is 29 points. But I feel since Oregon lost to Arizona State in the desert outright as 14-point favorites and Utah continues to roll up these gaudy scores, you've really seen the market respond positively in Utah's manner, negatively against Oregon, almost creating a situation where when you look at the matchups, you go, I'm not quite sure that this won't be the toughest defense that Utah's faced all season long in the Pac-12. So here's what's interesting. Prior to the Oregon lost to Arizona State, the number on this game was virtually a pick'em. Right? So from that perspective, there's probably a little value in the basic number here, in the core number. It's the matchups that I think leave you a little concerned if you were going to the well with Oregon. Um 
when you look at you know the Ducks defense, I, I think initially very strong. They've regressed since once they started playing some competition. I, I think this is interesting. Like, let's start here. You're looking at Oregon's defense. They have regressed. Um, they're actually the most efficient defense through the first six games of the season. But to your point, it's it's Utah will face that this is the first defense in the top 20 in overall efficiency. So it is a step up in class. And I think when you're just looking at some of these matchups, and that's what what would scare me a little bit if I had an Oregon ticket here. Can they match the physicality of Utah? That's the huge question, right? When you're going up against Zach Moss, um, you have to bring your lunch pail, right? You have to be a man, so to speak, all those cliche things. What I've seen from Oregon's defense at times is they've gotten pushed around a little bit. You then dig into some of these metrics because your eyes lead you there and you just look and Oregon's outside the top 35 in defensive line yards, right? They're 75th uh, in stuff rate. They're outside the top 50 in rushing success rate allowed. So, you know, you look at Andy Avalos. He's the Ducks DC. He's got to figure out a way to kind of slow Zach Moss down. I don't think you're going to completely remove him from the game. But you have to take away the, the outside zone runs. You have to make sure your ends are disciplined enough to set the edge and force Moss into the middle of the field where you're probably going to have some of these overloaded boxes, right? It's going to take more than one guy, one defender to bring down Moss. And this was wildly impressive to me, Todd. Zach Moss, he's forced missed tackles on 39% of his carries. He averages 4.7 yards after first contact. So this isn't a game, right, where you can be soft and win if you're Oregon. Um, if you can't slow down Moss, right, Utah offense becomes almost impossible to stop because Huntley isn't just a mobile guy anymore. You listen to his story, you read about him. This guy has just worked tirelessly, like turning himself into an efficient passer. And this is pretty shocking to me. Huntley is the fifth most efficient passer in college football. Completion percentage trails only the Heisman winner, who will be Joe Burrow. That was pretty wild to me. So, you know, for the past few seasons, I think like the goal of any opposing defense, right, it's it's keep Huntley in inside the pocket, right? Make him be an accurate pocket passer. This season from the pocket when it's clean, Huntley has a 130 passer rating with zero interception. So suddenly that isn't something that you can kind of rest your hat on as a defense. Um, and I think why it's important to mention Huntley's passing abilities, and I think you caught on to this quicker than I did, Todd, it seemed like when the Ducks secondary stepped up in class against more efficient throwers, they were pretty susceptible uh, on the back end. It's created problems. I mean, this Oregon defense, you mentioned how efficient they were early in the year. I think a lot of that, the byproduct of a relatively soft schedule, and we can say if they got worn down, but there is some vulnerability there from Oregon, and the more time they spend on the field, not exactly a ringing endorsement. And you mentioned Zach Moss, and that's that kind of blew me away with how elusive he's been, because you think of him as a straight-line runner, hey, he's just going to bull you over. But in reality, he's shown the ability to break those tackles and turn some short gains into longer runs. So I think if you are Oregon, you go into this game and you go, hey, we have to take away what Utah does best, and that's ultimately running the football. You look at some of their numbers, and this is a team that's run for over 200 yards in four of its last five games. It's opened things up uh, for Huntley. And I guess when, when I look at Oregon defensively, Payne, if they can't stop the run, as you said, this game snowballs pretty quickly. Now, on the other side of the ball, does Oregon have any matchup edges that they can exploit against Utah? I mean, are they going to have the capabilities to throw on that Ute secondary much like USC? For me, 
I would be led to believe that's not going to be the case, knowing how tenacious this Utah defensive line has been. And I think that's one of the most intriguing matchups to watch. Utah's defensive line against this supposedly all-world offensive line for Oregon that struggled to open up holes, especially in the ground game. Absolutely. And you look at the offensive competition, right? Like it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a step up. Right, and to your point, can Oregon take advantage outside through the air? Uh, also, you led us in the right direction because this probably is the best O line versus D line matchup the entire Pac-12 season. Um, but you look at Oregon's offense; they're struggling a little bit right now. They're trending metrics over the last three weeks. They're not pretty. They're even worse if you factor in the competition the defense has faced. Right? It's it's Oregon State, it's uh, Arizona State, and Arizona. Those three teams average out to be about 81st in defensive efficiency. Uh, the best of that bunch is is the Sun Devils, right? Oregon has seven points the first fifty two minutes of that game. Justin Herbert in this like must win, you know, game to keep playoff hopes alive puts up a thirty nine percent passing success rate against an Arizona State secondary that was eighty sixth in the country in passing success rate defense. So the the Ducks offense is is struggling, and I'm putting that nicely. And I I keep coming back to Marcus Arroyo, right? The Ducks OC who somehow thought is apparently in the mix for the UNLV job and the New Mexico oh, that'd one be, as well. That'd be perfectly fitting. I mean, if UNLV <laughs> wants to make a, a hire to set the program back even further than what they've done recently, bring in uh, Coach Arroyo because clearly he's revolutionized the game that Oregon likes to play offense. Yeah, it's like, yikes, right? Like, there's no way on God's green earth, like the possible first QB taken in the draft. And if you look at their own line, like there's probably four or five guys that will be on NFL rosters are trending this poorly against crap competition. There are some some interesting matchups, obviously. Um, you go back to the O-line versus D-line. That's good on good. It, it's it's elite versus elite. Somehow, Oregon has to win on first down, right? And it likely needs to be through the air on the early down. And we know Marcus Arroyo has been pretty hesitant to pass on that down despite having this NFL-caliber QB, right? If you think you're going to routinely win first down being predictable and running, it's probably a fool's errand when you think about Utah's defense and how it's built. It's all about the D-line. It's all about being physical and sound and keeping your gap integrity. And you look, Utah's 13th in line yards defensively, 8th in stuff rate. Only 33% of runs this season have graded successful. That's 7th best in the country. But you have to win on first down against Utah because if you don't, right, playing catch-up becomes pretty difficult. Utah's good defending uh, third downs as well. 10th in the country in third down defense. They don't give up big plays at all. Number one in explosive play defense as well. So that becomes the struggle if you aren't efficient on those early downs. Your question brings, it's a good question, right? About some athletes out wide and how you can attack Utah's secondary. They struggled against USC, right? In space against a backup quarterback. I'm just not sure Oregon has those kind of weapons outside, right? So, you know, if the the Ducks aren't winning on first down and you're forced into these known passing situations constantly, I don't know if they're going to be able to consistently win outside through the air. Um, From this, like, overall broad view with this matchup here, Todd, like the two defenses Oregon's faced in a similar class as Utah's, I, I would say Auburn and California, and you look in those two games, Oregon's offense was shut out the final 24 minutes of the Auburn game. They were shut out the, the the first 37 minutes at home against Cal. You know, when you just look at how Oregon's offense is trending, the matchup, how Utah's defense is playing, uh, this is the other element here, uh, in addition to the weather, the rain and the wind in the stadium, on why this total has come crashing down. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned USC, and they have one of the elite wide receiver cores in the country, maybe the best or second best behind only Alabama. You'd have to think that Julian Blackman and Jalen Johnson will have a lot more success taking away Oregon's pr- primary weapons. And when we talk about some of the Ducks' offensive struggles, this is a team that's really had issues trying to throw down the middle of the field. And we knew once Breland was out of the fold with the season-ending injury, the offense was going to struggle. And it's really reared its ugly head when Oregon steps up in class. Fortunately for them, they haven't taken on teams that could really test them. When you look at that number, Payne, you talk about the adjustment fully on board with uh, how much the market has shifted, whether it's perception or reality based on the current way these two teams are trending out to nearly a full touchdown. So just from a core number, no. When you factor in the matchups, I mean, I'm not running to 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 take Oregon here. Uh, I won't have a position on the side. Uh, we made the game right where it opened at five, but the matchups aren't great for Oregon. That's for sure. But you know, again, you just you just look two weeks back. This game's a virtual pick'em, so I could see if you were trying to make a case for Oregon, that's how you're. I guess guess brain would lead you saying, hey, there's there's value in this number. And, I, you know, it's just an interesting debate that we're going to have, I think, moving forward as, you know, the evolution of the market becomes a lot tighter and everyone is looking at the same power numbers virtually, right? What do you have to create the edge? And it's it's a lot of matchup things, right? It's It's a lot of personnel things. And that's going to become a larger part uh, and why we've really pushed that avenue uh, the last three or four years or so, right? Because I can tell you, just at least from an NFL perspective, there are billion-dollar organizations that do not have some of this matchup data, or I should say, don't use it. So it becomes difficult to think, and this isn't a jab at anybody, right? A sportsbook operator is suddenly going to be factoring these things into the number. So that's that's the where you're going to find some of your matchup advantages in your edges and things that, that aren't factored into the numbers. So you're telling me the Washington Redskins shouldn't open their own sports book? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were able, their advantage last week was on the ground. They were able to get it going with both Geis and, and Adrian Peterson. That's why who knew uh, the Car- I think that became the- a little attractive. Carolina run defense uh, couldn't hold up when they lost two more key cogs there. But I don't want to get into the professional ranks. We'll get that covered on uh, tomorrow's podcast. When you look at some of the recent numbers against the spread, Utah has done well by their backers, going 25 and 12 against the spread the last 37 overall, 22 and 9 against the spread the last 31 as a favorite. And when Oregon has stepped up in class, well, they haven't exactly thrived of late, just 3 and 8 against the spread when installed as an underdog. We shift our focus from Friday night to Saturday early afternoon down in Jerry's World. Well, Oklahoma and Baylor will renew acquaintances. And you're looking at the Oklahoma Sooners, an eight-point favorite in this game. Total 64.5 at Fox Bet. And Payne, this is going to be a common trend that we can discuss, how we factor in the revenge angle and how things unfolded in Waco. It was definitely a tale of two halves. You go from a 28-3 lead, 31-10, call it what you will, to ultimately a 34-31 victory for Oklahoma as they shut out the Bears in the second half. OU racks up a 525-307 yardage edge. And the last time Oklahoma laid single digits in a college football game was actually a year ago in the Big 12 title. They went out and they covered against Texas. Did Oklahoma find something in the second half that they can exploit here in a rematch where Baylor knows they're going to have to win and get some help if they're going to get into the college football playoff? So for me, before we get to the matchups, right? Candidly speaking, I'm struggling with this game because the line says Baylor's the side, just reading the market. Our core number 
makes this well above the key, right? And when you think about Baylor being an 11-point dog at home and now just eight on a neutral, I immediately pause because it concerns me a little bit. And listen, I get Matt Rule's a tough guy, preaches both like mental and physical toughness. But not only is this line short, but think about this from like a psychological perspective for a second. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Todd, before we kind of get into the matchups. If you're a boxer and and you get into the ring, you dominate your opponent for like the first six or seven rounds of the fight. I mean, you're crisp as you've you've been. The fight is in your favorite building and ring. The crowd's in your corner, right? Chanting your name. Your opponent comes into the fight with a broken hand. And in the end, you still lose. And what I mean by this is, like, you, you look, Baylor gets out to a 25-point lead. They're at home. C.D. Lamb, who's responsible for over 30% of the Sooners receiving yards this season, does not play, and you still lose. Like, how do you get over that mental hurdle? And, like, moreover, if there is a team that needs some style points here in the event that Georgia does lose, Oklahoma would be that team probably, no? I think 100%. I think if Utah were to go through and have a workmanlike performance against Oregon, people out there seem to believe that if Utah just beats Oregon, they're in the college football play over the Georgia loss. I've seen this story play out before. I'm not one in that particular mindset that says if Utah were to win, let's say call hypothetically 21-17 against Oregon, Oklahoma goes out there and beats Baylor by three touchdowns plus and looks dominant, picking up right where they left off in the second half. Georgia loses. Would it shock anybody? It definitely wouldn't me if Oklahoma jumped over Utah. And I think you bring up an interesting analogy because Baylor has to be feeling they let a glorious opportunity slip through their fingers. And while psychologically you go, hey, we want another shot. If Oklahoma gets a lead early and you're yep. Baylor, you're looking around trying to find answers. I think this thing craters real fast. And while I know the trend in college football lately has been to defer the opening kickoff because you want the chance to double up. If I'm Lincoln Riley, I'm scripting my first 15 plays of this game. I'm trying to get the ball. I want to march right down the field against Baylor, stick it up their ass, and force Charlie Brewer and company to play from behind. Because if Oklahoma gets a two-score lead in this game, I think it's good night, sweetheart, and we're talking about an absolute blowout and massacre in Dallas. It's absolutely vital that Baylor keeps this game close early and gets out to a potential lead. That's the only way. If Oklahoma gets out, as you alluded to, this thing could get ugly quick. No doubt about it. Um, and where we, do we want to start? I'm sorry, go ahead. I think we, yeah, you know what? I think we start with the matchups and kind of go strength on strength, which would be Oklahoma's offense against this Baylor defense. And Oklahoma's gone through a little bit of, I don't know if a metamorphosis is the right word. It might be a too strong a phrase, but clearly we've seen a shift in offensive philosophy over the last two games where Oklahoma has run the football 108 times and only thrown it 34 in wins against TCU and Oklahoma State. Might be a recipe for success against the Baylor team who defensively hasn't exactly been stout against opposing ground games over the last four. You're absolutely right. And to your point at the top of this, right, it's you wonder if Oklahoma figuring out how to attack Baylor late in that game carries over. Because you look in that first game, first four possessions, Oklahoma has a 43% success rate. That's below the national average, two drives end in turnovers. Final six drives, Oklahoma scores five times and puts up 426 yards of offense on those six drives. If it's not for a fumble uh, inside the 10 by Hertz, it, they're scoring all six times. Um, the Sooners' offense just completely controlled the second half of that game. If you look, 24 minutes of possession and 58 snaps delivered a 71% success rate in Q3, a 59% success rate in the fourth quarter when the game was still kind of hanging in the balance. And again, that's without CeeDee Lamb, who will be in this game. And I think that last part's worth mentioning, right? Like, we know how great CeeDee Lamb is, even if he's not catching the ball. 
right? When he's on the field, he's going to create space for others. You have to pay attention to him. You have to probably help over the top with a safety. Baylor, to this point, has been fantastic, you know, eliminating explosive plays. Um, Number three in explosive play defense. Number one in explosive pass defense. But they play to keep everything in front, and that leaves you vulnerable down to down. Um, And if you look, Baylor's defense is not overly efficient. And I'm not sure you can play that way against Oklahoma. So whether it's like running it or passing it, OU's wildly efficient. They actually have the most efficient offense in all of college football, although I think LSU's a little bit better. But 56% passing success rate, 54% rushing success rate. They're they're very balanced, right? If if you're going to try to keep things in front, um, and now you have this field spacer and lamb out there, I'm not sure how Baylor can get stops, right? Especially on the ground. Um, without Lamb in that first game, kind of creating some space. Hertz goes for 6.4 rush, uh, 6.4 yards per carry, uh, 74% success rate on the ground. Kennedy Brooks, 5.2 a carry. To me, when I looked at this and, and you started looking at or mentioning some of Baylor's deficiencies defensively, they really started right once Clay Johnston went out. And he's a guy that you're just going to sorely miss in a game like this. The front seven has been... Pretty vulnerable. They have not been the same since Johnston got injured and is out for the year. Yeah, I mean, I know, hey, I'm not going to take anything away from what Matt Rule accomplished. We've seen Baylor's defense take massive steps this season. They lead the Big 12 in scoring defense and rank third in total defense, a far cry from finishing seventh in total defense and eighth in scoring defense a season ago. But Oklahoma's a different animal. And you mentioned CeeDee Lamb. We know what his season-long numbers are. 50 catches, over 1,000 yards, and 14 touchdowns. Over the last two games, because he was out for Baylor, and those circumstances still remain one of the bigger mysteries in college football in terms of why Lincoln Riley held him out. Was it injury or something else? And I don't really want to speculate on any of that. He's had just six catches for 52 yards the last two games. Now, if that's by design or they plan to unleash CD on Baylor, much like the dynamic wide receiver we saw earlier in the season, if you're Matt Rule and you're Phil Snow trying to figure out a defensive game plan, that has to scare you half to death. Good luck. That's all I will say. Again, they do a fantastic job eliminating big plays, uh, both overall and through the air. But if you couldn't stop the ground game in the first game, Right, and you were able to cheat, how do you stop it now? And if you are forced to stick another guy in the box, I think, to your point, this is a game where Lincoln Riley is going to unleash C.D. Lamb because he's going to win one-on-one matchups every single day of the week. Yeah, I mean, you look at Baylor's run defense, they've allowed 161 yards or more in each of the last four games. We'll see if uh, they can put a little tourniquet on that. But on the other side, I think if you're Baylor, it's probably a little bit more disconcerting going up against an Oklahoma defense. And for as maligned as people are critical they want to be of Oklahoma, the Sooners still led the Big 12 in total defense during conference play after finishing dead last a season ago. And they deserve all the accolades, the kudos for simplifying that game plan. And maybe over the last couple weeks, those numbers have been a little bit better because Oklahoma's tried to dig dictate pace and tempo and it's paying dividends but you look at Charlie Brewer paying and if he's going to be asked to win this game I'm not sure he's got the arm to do it over his last four contests has only thrown for more than 200 yards once and that Baylor ground game yes Jordan Lovett and Jamichael Hasty are good but they're plotters they're not thoroughbreds plotters I like that um <laughs> you, you know I think the philosophy here is simple um at them not around them Right, north-south game for Baylor's offense. And, and to your point, like I think this is okay if you have plotters going north-south in a game like this and a matchup like this. But also, let's get Charlie Brewer going on the ground. 
And he was pretty effective there in the first game doing that. Went for 79 yards rushing and a 79% success rate on the ground. Then you hit a few explosive plays over the top, right? It's impossible to go east-west, right, Uh, on a speed defense like Oklahoma, um, who love to create havoc, who create a bunch of negative plays. And if you look, 14th in the country because Alex Grinch will send heat and light up your offensive line, um, which is a weakness of Baylor's offense. So you have to be good on early downs. You're going to have to establish the ground game, whether it's the two backs or Charlie Brewer or a combination of the three. Um, because if you do get in situations where Oklahoma can rush the quarterback, Grinch is going to send some heat. The Bears right now, the one thing that Matt Rule hasn't completely fixed, right? He got much better in the trenches defensively, still is trying to figure that out on the offensive side of the ball. Baylor's 93rd in the country in sack rate allowed. Oklahoma sacks the quarterback in almost 9% of dropbacks, top 25 in the entire country. So Baylor has to win on first down. That is far and away. Oklahoma's worst down defensively. They're 77th in first down success rate allowed. So you're going to want to get the ground game going, keep Oklahoma's offense off the field. But again, like what would make me nervous, Todd, if I'm a Baylor fan or I'm a backer, think about how they built that lead in the first half a couple weeks ago, right? It's turnover assisted. 21 of the 31 first half points scored took a grand total of 90 yards, right? Thanks to Oklahoma's like offensive gaffes. You just wonder, right, once Oklahoma's offense stopped shooting themselves in the foot and creating short fields for Baylor's offense, and once Alex Grinch kind of made some halftime adjustments, and he seemed pretty confident if you're reading some of the quotes that he had at halftime to Jalen Hurts, like, hey, this is going to be one we tell our kids about. He was quite confident. Baylor's offense had four total first downs in the second half, two of which were aided by penalties. The other two didn't come until the final drive of the game. 16 total snaps, only six minutes on the field in the second half for Baylor's offense. So, Again, to your point at the top, you just wonder if Grinch figured something out here schematically. Um, But Baylor's offense could not get anything going, you know, once they weren't being assisted. And if you look, Baylor, 25% success rate in the third quarter of that game, uh, 33% in the fourth quarter. National average, 42%, just to kind of paint that picture. So I think we will find out extremely quickly if Grinch figured out Charlie Brewer in the Baylor offense. And, I mean, that's kind of been the M.O. for beating Oklahoma. If this team shoots themselves in the foot, they're going to let inferior opponents hang around. They didn't turn the ball over against Oklahoma State this past week, and it had a very workmanlike effort uh, covering his two touchdown favorites. But we talked about it going into Bedlam, that Oklahoma leading up to it over the previous few games was minus seven in the turnover department, and Oklahoma State was plus eight. If Oklahoma, with their athletes and the skill they have, their offensive game plans, if they're even even in games in the turnover margin, it's going to be a tough ask for any team in the Big 12 to beat them. And I think Baylor would fit that mold as well. And if Oklahoma protects the football, even if they turn it over just one time, I'm not sure how the Bears compete. I agree. I'm sorry. I lost my mind here. I just got a text on one of the games we were uh, potentially discussing. Uh, yes. Yes. I agree. I concur. Let's move on. Um, All right. I'm not quite sure uh, how to interpret that. Uh, I'll look for my text messages to blow up shortly. Uh, We go to the SEC where it's LSU and Georgia doing battle in Atlanta. LSU now a seven and a half point favorite of Fox bet total in this game. Fifty four and a half LSU very much in the college football playoff. Georgia needing a win to secure passage into the college football semifinals. You've got and I guess paint. (laughs) 
<laughs> I guess when you look at this game, Payne, Georgia has been here and done that. Jake Fromm, five touchdown passes and zero interceptions the last two title games he's appeared in. No interceptions. LSU marking the first time a team comes from the SEC West, not named Alabama or Auburn since I believe 2011. And, and this game's fun for a variety of reasons because we can talk about strength on strength, which would be the LSU offense against the Georgia defense, or we can talk about the other side of the ball, maybe where the game is ultimately defined, Georgia's offense against LSU's defense. So, you know, just kind of poking around, and I don't really love doing this, but when you do have a lot of common opponents, it's interesting to look at these things. And in the four games uh, where there are common opponents, LSU's net point differential is 115% better than Georgia's. So we see why this line is where it's at. Um, To your point, obviously DeAndre Swift needs to be close to 100%, and he obviously needs to have a big game for Georgia to keep this within the number. If Swift can't get going or another running back doesn't emerge here, if he were to go down, uh, this becomes a near impossible task for the Bulldogs, right? I know LSU's defense hasn't played up to their standards, but this idea floating around that they're totally inept isn't true, right? Like Dave Aranda's defense, still 22nd in overall efficiency. They're still top 20 in both rushing and passing success rate defense. And if the entire world knows the key to stopping Georgia's offense, so does Dave Aranda, okay? So, (laughs) you know, bottom line here, Georgia not only needs the ground game to go bonkers, obviously, Fromm has to return to form if they're going to pull off the upset. You look at this, the last four games, he's completed less than 49% of his passes. Um, And then you look at the matchup within this game. You could argue that the best receiver on the team, Lawrence Cager, he's out for this one. Pickens suspended for the first half. So I'm not sure with equal talent levels, right? George is just going to be able to consistently run over LSU with no threat of the pass from Fromm and his receivers. So it's really interesting. This could... Like when you look at LSU defensively, and I think this was this was pretty telling and pretty interesting. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Coach O was asked about his defense being down significantly this season. It was on national TV during an ESPN broadcast, and he said, you know, I'm not gonna do his voice. But he basically said, Dave Aranda and I will get this figured out, don't you worry. And sure enough, last week against AM, LSU's defense allows forty four yards on the first 34 snaps they faced versus Kellen Mond and the Aggies offense. So God forbid if they figured it out on defense, you, you know, they they'd probably win the whole thing if they figured it out on defense. So when you look at this, like Georgia's O-line has to be dominant up front. Swift has to run the ball. You have to play keep away. You know, we did see a similar Bama O-line, um, a talented back in Najee Harris go for 7.7 yards a carry and a 63% success rate against this LSU defense. Uh, But that happens because there's this threat of pass, right? So Jake Fromm is going to have to probably play his best game of the season. And with those receivers missing, right, you wonder if you're going to see more two two tight end sets, right? More of these bulk packages. And I saw Kirby Smart sent like two tight ends up to the press conference this week. It was Warner and Wolf. It just kind of leads me to believe here that Georgia's game plan and their offense is going to be... A little bit more bulk, a little bit more two tight end sets. We know the spot where LSU is most vulnerable since, you know, Devin White moved on to the NFL is over the middle. From weeks one through the Alabama game, whatever week that was, LSU's defense allowed over 70% of passing attempts to be completed over the middle of the field. So, you know, that's where Fromm needs to focus. 
if his you know receivers aren't doing anything out wide, find the big guys over the middle. When Georgia does eventually get in the money zone and red zone, you, know, you can't settle for three in a game like this if you want to pull the upset. you got to be better than what you've produced so far. And if you look at Georgia's offense, really where they've struggled, because we talk about this all the time, Todd, like down to down, efficient. You look at their rushing success rate, their passing success rate. It's all very good. Right now, though, 66th in scoring opportunity inside the 40. They're 34th in red zone touchdown percentage. Teams are loading the box and forcing Fromm and the receivers to beat them once the space is condensed. So Fromm's got to be able to deliver over the middle of the field, open some things up uh, for Swift on the ground here. Yeah, it's much tougher. And you look at LSU, I mean, you want to give them an edge. You look at this team in the defensive backfield, whether it's Derek Stingley Jr., Kristen Fulton, Kerry Vincent Jr., or Grant Delpit. I mean, if they have inexperienced Georgia wideouts, you don't have to worry about doubling any of those guys. It allows you to play an extra man in the box. And you talking about the two tight ends makes a ton of sense because if you can use that bulk, it neutralizes some of the small, speedier athletes for LSU that they're going to try and utilize there. Obviously, we'll keep tabs on DeAndre Swift and see how that shoulder injury progresses, but I don't feel it's a massive drop-off, at least for me personally, to Zamir White and Brian Herring. You'd obviously love to have your bell cow out there. And with Pickens and Cager being out of the fold, especially in the first half, Georgia goes into this game pain without a wide receiver that's going to start the football game with more than 300 yards. And last I checked, Georgia doesn't run the option. Wild. That is wild. So... Not exactly ideal there. But I guess on the other side of the ball, this is the matchup everyone wants to watch. The irresistible force against the immovable object, or however that stupid saying goes. It's Heisman front runner, and let's call him what he is, the Heisman winner, Joe Burrow. Yeah. And a 70% plus completion percentage matched up against a Georgia defense that has stood tall in every challenge it's been faced with. But I think, Payne, when we look at this Georgia defense, and we talked about it earlier in the year when they had some big matchups, they don't create a lot of tackles for loss and a ton of disruptive plays, the havoc that you need to put a team behind the sticks. If LSU is efficient, can Georgia's defense hold up in a game where they're probably going to have to hold the Tigers to 24 points or less to be competitive? 24 or less. Hmm. Yeah, I mean... It's going to be tough to do. I mean, I feel it's got to be similar to that Auburn LSU game. What was it? 23 20. Yeah. And, you know, Auburn gave their offense a puncher's chance. Georgia's offense may be on a good day. I mean, they haven't scored more than 27 points, but once against Tennessee in conference play. LSU has the second most efficient offense in college football. Georgia, actually, after last week, uh, stomping out their in state rival, and I don't know if it's much of a rivalry, uh, moved to number one in defensive efficiency. And you can really tell doing some reading and listening to Kirby Smart this week, he really, really, really respects LSU's offense just by the tone, how he talks about them, what he says. Came out this week and and said most explosive offense he's seen on tape in college football. The greatest challenge he's faced since being at Georgia. I thought that was pretty telling, right? And I think we're all anxious at this point to see Joe Burrow. And he's been extremely successful. 58% of his passes have graded positive this season. And then you have two elite receivers in Jefferson and Chase and how they're going to fare against, you know, a deep, it's really deep, a Bulldog secondary. How will Georgia choose to defend LSU, right? Do they play it straight? Do they play dime? Do they put six defensive backs on the field? Does LSU decide to go tempo and not allow Georgia to substitute as often, right? To eliminate that advantage of depth. This is going to be a really fun chess match to watch. Um, in 2019, right, when you look at how football's played, right, and the changes of the rules and the advantages, I think great offense over a large enough sample beats great defense. 
and you just look, Joe Burrow, he's faced four top 25 defenses in efficiency this season. He's been excellent against all of them. He makes you defend every inch of the field. And you see a guy right now that's completing 78% of his passes, and you think like, ah, you know, maybe he's dinking and dunking. (laughs) It's the complete opposite. His average depth of target is 9.2 yards. He's thrown the ball downfield 152 times this season. He's completed over 66% of those throws. And if you look at his touchdowns, 44 in total, 31 of those touchdown throws have been at least 10 yards downfield. So he makes you defend every blade of grass. Um, and you look at Georgia's defense. To your point at the top, and it's it's a great one and something that we've kind of bashed them a little bit about. I don't want to say bashed them, but relatively speaking, we haven't felt Georgia's defense is as good as the national narrative because of these two things that they haven't done overly well. They're not elite in two areas, right? They're not elite creating pressure, and they have to figure that out. They have to get to Burrow with four guys. They have to do it on standard downs so that LSU's offense, right, is in a ton of known passing situations. Um, And when LSU does run it, Georgia has to stuff it at or behind the line of scrimmage, create havoc, as you alluded to, create these negative situations. And right now, Again, despite being number one in overall defensive efficiency, the Bulldogs' defense, 33rd in stuff rate, 58th in havoc. The other interesting matchup here, and it's wild to me that he's almost the forgotten man, but it speaks volumes to just how goddamn good Joe Burrow has been. But the X factor in my mind is Edwards Hilaire, right? He's the guy that makes it difficult for defenses to play small and dime coverage to defend Burrow and in, in the weapons outside, right? He's the guy that doesn't allow you to remove Burrow in the pass game from the equation, right? His physicality uh, as a runner, his ability to break tackles, it's this perfect complement to a high-flying LSU pass game. And he's really the reason, if you look, that LSU's offense continues to be consistent when the field shrinks because LSU top 10 in both scoring opportunity and red zone touchdown percentage. So it's not just this fun and gun offense. They can pound you. And you look just last season when these teams played without a passing game as potent, you know, as potent. You look at Edwards Hilaire's numbers, went for 7.6 a carry. So if Georgia does attempt to play a little dime defense here, I think he becomes the key cog. Um, he's going to make Georgia pay for playing small if they choose to go that route. We see how effective he was in the Alabama game. 5.2 a carry, 70% success rate on the ground. Broke about 97 tackles on that 11-yard run to seal the game. <laughs> I, I think no one's talking about him enough. No, I mean, and this is a guy that a lot of the players on LSU have actually quietly credited with the success of their offense, knowing that they can lean on him, saying that he might be one of the most talented and underrated backs all at the same time. And his numbers won't blow you the way the same way Jonathan Taylor or some of those other guys that just get fed over and over and over again the offense revolves around. But Hilaire, when you look at how he's performed three games against ranked opponents this season, he's rushed for 373 yards, six touchdowns, and he's averaged a shade under 20 carries per game. The last five games, he's gone for almost 700 yards. George has got to take away something that LSU does, and you would think by default, Payne, you try and take away the ground game, but maybe you're right. Maybe they come out in that dime defense and they go, hey, you know what? We're going to give up three to four, five to seven yard carries and make LSU put together long time consuming drives because by condensing that if they can hold LSU to field goals in the red zone and not give up touchdowns that's going to give them the best chance to win this football game no question I think part of Hilaire's success has been the improvement of the offensive line they've been really physical they've moved guys around in the trenches they're ninth right now 
in line yards. And it's just why this offense has been so balanced. Because if you try to cheat and you have six defensive backs on the field, they'll just out-physical you at the point of attack and get Hilaire going. And again, he's been fantastic breaking tackles. I believe he uh, surpassed David Montgomery's record last season for a percentage of missed tackles. So... Uh, he's been fantastic in that regard. If you do decide to stop the ground game, then you're vulnerable against the pass. It's it's just really a difficult offense uh, to stop. You are going to have to employ a strategy that we saw Auburn do, right? Now, granted, they gave up over 500 yards of offense, but you have to buckle down in the red zone, hold the three. That's the big key here. Can Georgia do enough on the ground and play keep away? When they do get in scoring opportunities, they have to get seven. And on the other end, they have to hold the three. That That's the chance they have here. But again, I think it's seven and a half. Um, Georgia's going to be going to be the side here. Well, the silver lining in all of this is that the current money line price on Georgia is plus two and a quarter at Fox Bet. We're sitting on plus three dollars or better. So we've at least beaten the market for our Georgia money line ticket in this game. Uh, according to some, <laughs> beating the market, uh, does not matter. Uh, getting your money in good does not matter. Having information not factored into the number does not matter. It's, 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 it's about takeaways. Um, so, <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah. Anyways, I, I haven't played it yet, but, uh, there has been some value bets that I've seen come across uh, on Georgia at seven and a half. And again, I, th- I think that hook, uh, could be pretty vital. I was looking at our core number here. It's like 6.2. I, we've just been higher on LSU than, than everyone from the onset that, that Joe Brady hire, uh, really had us start LSU very high this season. And it clearly has paid dividends as LSU now on a crash course to get to the college football playoff with aspirations of bringing a national title back to Baton Rouge. But there are also national championship aspirations in Columbus, Payne, and it's Ohio State, a 16.5-point favorite at Fox Bet. Total on the game, 56.5, as they will take on Wisconsin. The second meeting of these two teams, this time taking place in the climate-controlled Lucas Oil Stadium of lovely, scenic Indianapolis. Revenge for from a game dominated by the Buckeyes, 38-7. They out physical Wisconsin at the point of contact, racking up 431 to 191 total yards. You have to wonder with some of these scenarios, is it more challenging for the winner to get themselves geared up uh, for a revenge type scenario or for the loser? And I know we talked about about a little bit, Oklahoma Baylor, but this game took on a very different tenor for Wisconsin to go, hey, you know what? We were whipped at the point of contact the first time around. We want a second chance to prove that we belong on the same football field as the Scarlet and Gray. You're leading us in the perfect direction. And, and I know Big Ten folks are, are fervent about their football and conference, so I don't want to shortchange the breakdown, but I don't think there's a need to spend a ton of time here, Todd, right? There's two schools of thought. The first one is if you like Wisconsin, it's because your model is telling you there's value in the number, right? It's tough to justify Wisconsin being a 14-point dog in the horseshoe against Ohio State at the time who had everything to play for and then be 17.5 on a neutral in a game where winning by one is enough for Ohio State. And on top of that, we know Justin Fields is going to be wearing a brace on his knee. So, you know, with those situations, if Ohio State is up 10, 11, 14 to start the fourth quarter, is there a need to push it even further, right? So I think, you know, those are some of the key reasons this game's come off 17 and a half. You're down to the current 15 and a half number. I'm not a big bet percentage guy, but you look right now, 80% of the tickets are on Ohio State. Like it's, it's real money on Wisconsin. The second school of thought would be, and God forbid, Ohio State plays at or near 
max capacity, this game's probably not close. Because, (laughs) you know, if you look just quickly, and and I don't think we spend a ton of time here, if you look at both sides of these balls, like Wisconsin's offense, it's about being physical, right? And being a bully works extremely well until the bigger bully moves in on the same block. Then what? And Wisconsin likes to overpower you. They weren't able to do that in the first meeting against a bigger, stronger, faster, quicker Buckeyes defense. If you look, Buckeyes defense right now, they're fourth in line yards allowed. Number one in stuff rate. The Ohio State defense has stopped 29% of handoffs at or behind the line of scrimmage. Those like metrics are the reason why only 33% of runs are grading successful right now. In the first meeting, Jonathan Taylor was held to 2.6 a carry and a 35% rushing success rate. If anything close to that happens here, then what? Like, what's the next option for the Badgers' offense? And on the other side of the ball, think how scary this is, right? In the first meeting, Todd, Ohio State does not score in the first quarter. Justin Fields completes 55% of his passes for less than five yards an attempt. It was rainy. It was windy. Ohio State hangs 38 points and wins by five scores, right? Think about why we liked Wisconsin last week as it pertains to the Badgers' defense. It's because of the weather conditions, right? It's 22-mile-per-hour winds. It's 35-mile-per-hour gusts, a little snow. Those elements helped Wisconsin's secondary in a major way, right? It's a secondary that's been giving up like gobs of big plays once they started playing better offenses. Bateman burned the Badgers' secondary like multiple times. After the first touchdown, though, you, you see, though, the wind. It like hung up the ball at least three different times. It allowed Wisconsin secondary who was burnt on multiple occasions, to recover, make a play. Now, all of a sudden, you think about this week. The game's indoors. There's no weather. There's no wind to help. This is one of the fastest surfaces around, and Ohio State's speed is going to be on full display here, right? And you look at Wisconsin's defense. Even though they faced, like, below-average schedules of offenses as a whole this season, the Badgers also haven't been able to stop. They're on 64th in yards per carry. They allow 4.8 when you remove sack yards, 106th an explosive run defense. I'm not sure any of those issues have been fixed, right? And we saw Dobbins run wild in the first meeting, 8.2 a carry, 50% success rate. So to kind of just put a bow tie in this really quickly, the value in the game theory points to Wisconsin. But if Ohio State cares enough, and I know that's tough to say in a conference championship game, right? But if Ohio State cares about margin, and that's obviously the big question, the on-field matchup is extremely favorable for the Buckeyes. Well, Wisconsin fans should hopefully take solace in the fact that the Buckeyes probably won't hang 59 on them uh, in this conference championship like they did with Cardale Jones, because if they do, it means that they're not going to have a chance to go to the Rose Bowl. And I think that's where Wisconsin fans really have aspirations if they're to play a competitive game against Ohio State. One last question, and you brought it up, and I was going to mention if you didn't, talking about fields. Can you see a scenario where Ohio State is a little bit more tentative and discourages him from running, knowing, hey, look, even if that knee is 75 to 80%, we don't need you to go out there and risk it. We have bigger fish to fry coming up in a few short weeks. That's exactly the game theory aspect, right? And if he is wearing a knee brace, is he going to be a willing runner? Are they just going to make him a passer? And that is a huge element. Um it's, it's very possible. Now, that said, the other side of the equation is, well, this goddamn total just went from 52 to 57 right now, and 55 is the largest key number in college football where games land roughly 3.5% of the time. So who's scoring the points here? It, it, it's, it's a really, hey, it's a really did, tricky game. We did see Wisconsin, yes. you know, go Broke out the end arounds. They were able yep. to run the ball. They were able to, you know, Jack Cohn's balls dropped in that game. Um He was able to get Jonathan Taylor going uh, through the air a little bit. Great back shoulder throw on the wheel route. 
He played fantastic. He's going to have to follow that up again. But the difference is, Quintez Cephas is a matchup nightmare for the rest of the Big Ten defenses. His speed element probably isn't a massive factor here against a, a secondary like Ohio State. How dare you discount Jack Cohen, the quarterback who led the Big Ten in completion percentage this season, throwing the majority of his passes three yards or less beyond the line of scrimmage. All right. From the Big Ten <laughs> to a, a game, in my I'm opinion, gonna, that— I'm not that mean. Uh, that I was, was trying to mean. I was— tr- I was trying to get a reaction. It didn't get there, but I mean... Well, I shouldn't say he doesn't get paid. I don't know how much he gets paid, but it's not on the books, and I don't think we should bash him for that completely. Probably (laughs) got a nice little little, little handshake envelope last week. He was fantastic. Hey, he put together one hell of an effort against Minnesota. It does make you wonder, though, if that game is played in perfect conditions, how many points the Gophers are able to beat the Badgers by. Definitely not playing Wisconsin. There's no doubt about it. And uh, if that game offered little intrigue in Indianapolis, I'm not sure this one offers much more in Charlotte, where it's Clemson putting their undefeated record on the line as they'll play their 13th exhibition game of the college football season, taking on the Virginia Cavaliers. Clemson, a 28-point favorite, total on this game, 55. And Payne, when you look at Clemson this season, they've been favored in every game by 15.5 points or more. The 15.5, the closing line when they took on Texas A&M. In 11 of their 12 games, they've been favored by more than 24.5 points. Their final six conference games, they've outscored their opponents 315 to 58. And when we look at Virginia defensively, they've been far from dominant the last month of the season. They've given up 116 points in four November games. Clemson, meanwhile, allowed 121 points all season. I'm not sure even where you want to go to try and ask if Virginia can be competitive. Maybe we play out the perfect scenario. What do the Cavaliers have to do to shorten the game or to keep this game inside the number? Something a lot of the ACC has failed to do against Clemson the last couple months. Well, listen, again, the number is really interesting here. Does does Clemson need to do anything but win this game by more than a point? And the answer is no. Um, and I'm not like you, so I'm not going to be overly critical here. But it is what it is. The numbers are the numbers. Virginia's offense is a one-man show. Like Bryce Perkins is option one, two, three A. That's and not 3B. being critical. That's the reality. Yeah. It it lives and breathes with Bryce Perkins. Yeah. And so uh, you know, even look last week, Bryce Perkins, 172 yards on the ground, another 311 through the air. The only reason Virginia survived last week because they hit explosive plays and they got a couple turnovers. Um, but like down to down, the offense wasn't overly efficient. 36% success rate. I don't think Virginia's kind of busted out of their slump. Um, and in a game like this, I get Perkins is, is Ben Houdini, but I'm not sure he's able to consistently out-athlete Clemson on his own. So, you know, to your point, how do they potentially play keep away? Like, I, I don't know. The one thing or the couple things that are missing from Virginia's offense this season compared to last is the ground game. It's really non-existent aside from Perkins improvising um, and even on design runs. Like, you just look, even with that X factor of a mobile quarterback, Virginia's 58th in the country in rushing success rate, 72nd in yards per carry. So it becomes tough to bleed the clock, you know, which is what you want from a large dog. You know, seven minutes of 0-0 football, a couple of those stretches – you're, you're happy as a clam with 28 points in your back pocket. You also need, and I'm not sure this is necessarily the case for, like, they're not going to win the game here. Like, let's kind of call that a spade a spade here. But to stay, huh. stay with There you go. Bashing the dreams of people hoping for a Virginia money line bet at 20 to 1. You know, you also, like, in a game like this, 
hitting a couple explosive plays, a big play or two. Unfortunately, Virginia's had a hard time replacing their two receivers from a season ago, and they haven't shown an ability to hit big plays through the air either. 87th and explosive passing. But again, I keep coming back to this, and it was kind of my point at the top of the show. It comes down to the number. Um, My full season numbers say there's value in the dog, that this should be roughly 25 and a half as a core. And Clemson doesn't need margin, right? Win by one. The problem is, and it kind of leads us into the other side of the ball, and I don't know if you want to transition us there, but it's kind of my point here. If you're only using like trending metrics... This number is a touch short because Trevor Lawrence has been an absolute fire and he has responded uh, to all the early season negativity and criticism. And since that first quarter of the Louisville game, Lawrence has 19 touchdowns, zero picks, completed 76% of his passes over that time frame. Like he's figured out, it seems, how to kind of navigate life without the security blanket that is Hunter Renfro. He's been more efficient on the intermediate throws. And just quickly looking at this matchup, and then we can wrap this up and get the hell out of here. You remember this, (laughs) right? Bronco Mendenhall, I think it was before the Notre Dame game. And it's really been a little bit throughout a lot of his pressers this season. He's been extremely skeptical about his rush defense. And to his point, he's, he's pretty much spot on. Virginia's defense has regressed a little bit in terms of Uh, punching people in the mouth and being physical at the point of attack. They're 45th in rushing success rate defense. They've given up 4.6 a carry when you remove sack yards. Uh, They're in the bottom half of the country in adjusted line yards. So they haven't been good stopping the run. Where Virginia's defense, at least on paper, and I preface it that way because it's important, is against the pass. 32% of passes have graded successful. That's 10th best in the country. The problem is they've been roasted by deep passes, 106 in the country, explosive pass defense. That's how Clemson likes to attack you. And the crazy part, Todd, Virginia's defense, the best they've faced all season is probably Notre Dame in terms of efficiency uh, offensively. The best quarterback they've faced, arguably Ian Book. The Cavs defense has not faced one offense that ranks better than 32nd in passing success rate. Against the 11 FBS opponents that Virginia's defense has faced, the average passing success rate ranking of those offenses, 77th. So on paper, they look good as a pass defense. They're going to get tested here. Uh, tested might be a uh, understatement. Yes. Uh, so I'll give you the benefit of the doubt there. Bryce Hall ain't walking through that door anytime soon. And when you look at some of the defensive numbers Virginia has given up, uh, you can give them a pass maybe for the 30 they allowed to resurgent Virginia Tech team and Hendon Hooker. Uh, in the game uh, that they hadn't won in 15 years. But when you allow 55 combined points against Liberty and Georgia Tech leading up to that, where you still had a lot to play for, not exactly a ringing endorsement who, as you mentioned, Trevor Lawrence slinging the ball as efficiently and effectively as anybody in the country right now, not named Joe Burrow, Travis Etienne, a home run waiting to happen, and Higgins, Ross, just to name a few in terms of the Clemson receiving core. Dabo also some pretty interesting comments leading up to it, poking the bear in terms of Georgia and some of these other teams using comparative scores. So I'd have to think that Clemson wants to go out there 
make a statement and once again prove to people that hey don't forget about us so we still are the reigning national champions but yeah Virginia definitely has to find a way to shorten the game uh, and look to try and maximize their possessions I will say win or lose regardless of how this goes Bronco Mendenhall deserves full marks for getting this Virginia program back on track I mean when he inherited from I think it was Mike London was the coach at the time what were they two and two and ten the season before and Bronco said he couldn't even get guys to carry the right body language to team meetings so when you're playing for a conference championship essentially what the ACC has become you're playing for number two behind the Clemson Tigers everyone is no doubt about that and I think there was something he said prior to even the start of last season it was like uh I think I have about 16 guys, and and the number I'm using is wrong, but I thought he said something, the gist of, I have about 16 ACC caliber players. And that becomes pretty interesting. He's changed the baseline of recruit, that's for sure. Now he's got to go find a quarterback, though. And we know Perkins was a Juco transfer, so it's not that he got lucky landing him, but he still hasn't really grown the talent Um, he's going to need to have to find a replacement quarterback. So that will be interesting to see if he can do that to continue this success. But no doubt the program's completely changed. Uh, Not that it's going to happen, but obviously the potential for 11 wins. And I think every Virginia fan would would love that. Uh, But everything goes through Clemson right now. I don't think there's a team in the ACC that is less than four or five years away from truly competing with Clemson. Yeah, and that may uh, that may be generous. So Dabo has clearly built a dynasty there, and nobody seems poised to knock Clemson from that perch. Oh, it's going to take. We'll see it it's going to take assistance leaving for head coaching jobs. It's going to take a a whiff at quarterback and someone landing a quarterback. That's an absolute game changer. That's the only way this process uh, in the ACC changes within four years. Yeah, I mean, what they have going on there is just a factory at this point, and clearly the preeminent name in college football trumping that of Alabama and everybody else right now looking to play catch-up with what they have going on there. Five conference championship games all covered in great detail, some more so than others that required our added attention there. But we do have one final order of business. And of course, the best bet comes to you courtesy of Fox Bet, where the biggest name in sports is now the hottest name in sports betting and one of the fastest growing sports betting apps out there. Whatever sports you like betting on, Fox Bet has you covered. You can download the app to your smartphone and track lines from absolutely anywhere. Real money wagering available in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. We encourage all of our listeners to go there, check out some of the uh, aggressive sign-up bonuses, and take advantage of the FoxBet app. Make the call. Download the app today. Payne, best bet-wise, where are we finding an investment on an otherwise lean board on Conference Championship Saturday? All right, you're not going to love me on this one because it's it's not a Saturday game, so there's not going to be as much breathe time. That's not good for Mark Payne. That's not good for marketing. It's not good for plays. It's not good for listens. It's not helping the business cause around here by doing that. <laughs> that That's for sure. Uh, that's one thing I think if our, our listeners will know, when, when lines move too much, uh, while we love the agreement and, and beating the number, it also doesn't allow us to promote said podcast uh, later in the week when the lines pass the point of us not liking to play it anyways I I don't love this board this number has certainly uh, gotten away from us a little bit but I still think there is enough value and I should say it's it's the one game that we at least both have uh, a little bit of of money on on the college side to this point it's the only one Uh, so that's that's why we're going this route let's go back to the well 
home of the first half under bet the board Friday night Pac-12 championship under 21 and a half or better in the first half so we've broken this game down a bunch much of this is to do with the weather right I think when you have swirling winds um, right now again I'm looking about 22 miles per hour gusts up to 30 Uh, about a 94% chance of rain in the mix as well. And I think there's this mindset, Todd, that, you know, Oregon might be a little disappointed that they're out of the playoff mix. And I guess I could see that angle, but this is like the biggest game that they've had in a long while. So I don't get the idea that they're just going to, you know, roll over here. Um, So the key here is obviously stopping Zach Moss. And when you're playing this total, Todd, I don't mind if Zach Moss is going for four yards of carry. Because the no, we want churning. Zach Moss. To, we want him to go for four yards a carry. We want him to have 15 carries a drive, and we want every drive to stall at the Oregon 12-yard line. A- absolutely. So, um, from that perspective, it's like I don't know if Oregon's receivers are good enough to attack Utah um, where they're most vulnerable. I don't think they have the athletes outside, and then again, the winds and the weather probably aren't going to allow that. Ball security is going to be key here. The other thing we've seen is Utah. Their offense, as efficient as it is, as physical as it is, that physicality usually lends itself in the second half. You notice they've been a little slow starting, especially on the road, Um, but they eventually just wear you down. So we remove that aspect of it by going in the first half. So uh, Friday night, Pac-12 championship, Levi Stadium, under 21 and a half or better in the first half. Can we uh, assume that you're going to be out there in your galoshes and a rain jacket hoping like uh, Mr. Cantori that we're going to get nothing but sideways wind and rain up there <laughs> in, the, in the Bay Area? I, I'm not a fan of, of, of wet and, and rain. I, I kind of melt. More of an indoor kind of human if you haven't been able to tell. Yeah, I don't know where, any, I don't know where anyone would have come away with that takeaway from. After all these years. All right. Either way, it's a lean board, to say the least, when you talk about championship games. It's college football's swan song, as we'll only have bowls left to discuss after this weekend, but plenty of those, as we've talked about at great lengths. You, of course, will be able to get all of that great bowl information. We'll probably put the podcast out sometime after Christmas, highlighting the marquee games. And if you're not already following the Bet the Board Twitter account, we encourage you to do so at Bet the Board Pod for all of those updates. You can follow Payne on Twitter at Payne Insider. I'm Todd Furman. You can follow me there. And of course, download the Fox Bet app to check your odds or matter where your travels take you throughout the course of this holiday season. Payne, any final uh, parting shots, words of wisdom as it pertains to the conclusion of college football and only one college football podcast remaining? No, that's it. Let's get out of here. For Payne Insider. I am Todd Furman. Best of luck with all of your wagers this weekend. And come Friday night, pretty late in the evening on the East Coast, with the first half under ticket in hand, we'll see you at the window. Some people just know there's a better way to do things, like bundling your home and auto insurance with Allstate, or hiring someone to move your piano instead of doing it yourself. So, do things the better way. Bundle home and auto and save up to 25% with Allstate. Bundled savings vary by state and are not available in every state. Saving up to 25% is the countrywide average of the maximum available savings off the home policy. Allstate Vehicle and Property Insurance Company and Affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.